Ritchie. Hello and welcome to City Breaks St. Petersburg, episode 16. Gogol, Tolstoy and Dostoevsky. I'm going to take a look at those three 19th century authors and see what they can tell us about St. Petersburg. Two of them, Gogol and Dostoevsky, actually lived and worked here. Tolstoy was more of a Moscow-based author, really, but he did write some memorable passages about St. Petersburg too. So we're going to have a little look at one or two of those. There'll be some biographical information on certainly the two authors who spent a lot of time in St. Petersburg. There'll be a flavour of their writing, particularly the things that actually are about the city. And then to finish the episode, I'm going to talk a little bit about the Dostoevsky Museum, right in the heart of the Senea Ploschad area, in which both he and Gogol lived and about which they wrote. Starting then with Nikolai Vasilievich Gogol, born in 1809. He's the earliest born of the three writers. He's also actually the shortest lived. He died in his 40s. He'd been born in Ukraine, but he moved to St. Petersburg at the age of 19 because he'd taken on a job in a government office, a very low paid, not very interesting job as a clerk. He rented a series of dingy rooms in crowded boarding houses. So he knew all about this Senea Ploschard area. That means Haymarket. He lived in amongst the people there, in poverty. He knew all about the noisy, crowded, down-a-hill streets that the migrants and the tradesmen that you were going to meet, tailors, shoemakers, painter decorators, all that sort of thing. And he was still there when he published his first book of short stories, Tales of Life in the Ukraine, which in fact went down rather well and enabled him to make his life from then on as a writer. That was good news, of course, but I don't think his is a story that ends all that happily. We know that he wasn't very happy in later life. He had a lot of health problems and he was frequently given to writing in some despair, really, about the vulgarity of life in St. Petersburg. You'll meet prostitution, you'll meet opium in his stories, but also the very dull humdrum life that so many of the lowly residents were forced to lead. Government clerks, as he himself had been, of course, who were snubbed by their superiors. His reputation today is really as having been the first Russian writer to write about the lives of the poor. He wasn't really, still isn't really seen as a social reformer. He was very good at describing things, but he wasn't one of those writers who demanded change. In fact, because of what he wrote, he had quite a lot of liberal admirers when they read what he'd actually put. But when they discovered that he thought, for example, that serfdom and autocracy were traditions in Russia that should be left well alone, I think they realised that he wasn't going to be the man to get things changed for them. As well as learning all of this about social conditions in St. Petersburg at the time, though, you can read his works just to enjoy his characterisations as well. There are lots of little pen portraits of people where, in a few lines, he manages to sum up what they were really like. So, by way of an example, here's a description of Schiller from Nevsky Prospect. In the story... One Lieutenant Pirogov has an affair with Mrs. Schiller, and here is Gogol's description of her husband. Quote, Schiller was a complete German, in the full sense of the word, since the time when he was only twenty, that happy time when a Russian lives without caring a damn about anything. Schiller had planned out his life, and in no case made any exceptions. He had decided to rise at seven, to dine at two, to be methodical in everything, and to be drunk every Sunday. He had set himself to accumulate a capital of 50,000 in 10 years. He never increased his expenses, and if the price of potatoes rose above normal, 
he did not add a single kopeck, but decreased the quantity he ate, and although he sometimes remained somewhat hungry, he nevertheless became used to it. I also enjoyed Gogol's description of Lieutenant Pirogov, which reads as follows, quote, He could not conceive how anyone could resist him, especially as his gallantry and his excellent rank gave him full right to attention. As a 21st century reader, you may well balk at his some of his descriptions of women, but if you dig down a little bit, he does show sympathy for their difficult circumstances and a respect for them in certain ways. So when describing the charms of Schiller's wife that make Lieutenant Pirogov fall for her, he writes the following. Silliness, by the way, constitutes a special charm in a pretty little wife. I have known many husbands who were delighted with their wives' foolishness. And just as you're beginning to balk and think, I can't read this stuff, you go on and find that actually he points out that this makes life very difficult for women as they get older, and he writes, I think, with some insight, like this. When her beauty vanishes, a woman has to be twenty times as clever as a man in order to inspire, if not love, then at least respect. The story Nevsky Prospect opens with several pages of description of the Nevsky Prospect. I read some quotes from that, I think, in the episode on that. But now I'd like to talk just a little bit about the plot. In fact, there are two plots, two characters walking up the Nevsky Prospect at night who have very different outcomes to their evening. The first one is a very romantic hero, and the second one is somebody much more realistic and cynical. We watch the romantic hero following a young woman as he thinks it, to her house. But when they get there, it turns out that it's a brothel. She's only 17, but she's already working as a prostitute. And he's shocked and runs away. And then when he thinks about it, as Gogol puts it, he was, quote, pierced to the heart with pity for what the girl could have been, a lovely calm star in a family circle. And so he has his hero return to the building to seek the girl out and propose to her. But she rejects him. I think nothing like this has ever happened to her before and she thinks this can't be good. So our hero goes home and cuts his own throat and dies. Contrast all of that then with the aforementioned Lieutenant Pirogov who seduces a married woman and falls into trouble when her husband finds out. The husband duly beats him up and he consoles himself. Unlike the first man, he's not distraught and unable to go on. He simply goes home eats some cakes, reads the newspapers, and spends a few evenings out dancing. So it's very much an it-takes-all-sorts sort of story, but it ends with a comment on Nevsky Prospect itself, which reads like this. Nevsky Prospect deceives at all hours of the day, but the worst time of all is at night, when the devil himself is abroad, kindling in the street lamps with one purpose only, to show everything in a false light. So a picture of the seamier side of St. Petersburg, an idea that beneath the beautiful exterior lurk all kind of horrors. You see the more humdrum side of the city in a story called The Overcoat, in which the hero, in inverted commas, because he's hardly heroic, uh, one Akaki Akakovich, is a very ordinary clerk who spends his days copying, exactly as Gogol himself had done when he first came to the city, and it's said of him that, quote, no one could say he had ever been seen at a party. A slight upturn comes possibly in Akaki's life, when after several years of copying things out in the office, somebody decides he can do a little bit more and gives him a slightly more difficult task, and Gogol describes him being so overwhelmed by this, working up a sweat, getting into a stress, that in the end they had to take the task away, except that actually copying was all he would ever be able to do, and set him back to work 
as he'd always been. And the story revolves around his overcoat, which has become so threadbare and worn out that it really can't be mended any more. The tailor says it's impossible. And so Akaki Akakovich decides there's nothing for it. He's going to have to save up for a new one. And there's at least a page of description about the difficulty of this and the lengths that he has to go to to put some money from his meagre wages aside. So here's how that goes. Quote, Akaki Akakovich was in the habit of setting aside a half kopeck for every rouble he spent, putting it into a little box with a lock and key and a small hole cut in the lid for dropping money through. At the end of every half year, he inspected the accumulated sum of copper and exchanged it for a small silver. Thus he continued for a long time, and in this way, over the course of several years, he turned out to have saved a total of more than 40 roubles. Gogol explains to us that the coat is going to cost 80 roubles, so he's still got 40 to go, so he has to cut down even more and see if he can manage that. So there's a passage about him cutting down his expenses, giving up drinking tea in the evening, resolving not to burn any candles. If he really, really needed a candle to see what he was doing, he would go to the landlady's room and share hers, and he would, quote, make the lightest and most careful steps possible when walking in the street, over cobbles and pavements, almost on tiptoe, thereby avoiding the rapid wearing out of soles. He would also do things like send his linen to the laundry as little as possible, and even, quote, he accustomed himself to going entirely without food in the evenings, but instead he was nourished spiritually, bearing in his thoughts the eternal idea of the future overcoat. So eventually he does actually manage it, he has the money, he goes back to the tailor, a great deal of fuss ensues about making the coat, and then comes the day when he's able to wear the new overcoat to work, where of course he becomes the talk of the office, in fact, a party's thrown that evening to celebrate the event, and he feels obliged to go, even though, as we heard earlier, he isn't really a party-going man. But unfortunately, he gets mugged on the way home, and of course, his overcoat is stolen. He tries to deal with the police, but they're too busy to see him, they keep fobbing him off, and so he gets colder and colder, and eventually he dies. And actually, I'm not spoiling the end of the story for you, because that isn't quite the end. There's a twist at the end, which I won't reveal, but which I think you'll enjoy if you have a moment to find the story, The Overcoat. Its themes then really are poverty and the idea, perhaps, of knowing your place. Akarkovich tried so hard to better himself a little bit to get this fancier overcoat, and of course, no good came of it. Perhaps readers were supposed to take from that then. It was better to accept one's lot in life and not to try and climb out of it. Then I want to mention briefly one third story, also by Gogol, called The Nose. An absurdist story, if ever there were one, also about a social climber, this time one Major Kovalyov, who suffers the unlikely indignity of having his nose escape from his face and run around St. Petersburg, where he's forced to chase it. So you get little glimpses into all sorts of incidents on street corners in the city and um, so that makes it a story to read if you're going or have been and want to just see what you recognise in what Gogol wrote. It opens like this. On the 25th of March, 18, blank, blank, a very strange occurrence took place in St. Petersburg. On the Ascension Avenue there lived a barber of the name of Ivan Yakolovich. There's a little description of him. There's detail about the argument he had with his wife one morning about breakfast. He asked for a fresh loaf of bread with onions in it and she got cross and threw one at him 
And this is what happened next. Quote, For the sake of propriety, Ivan Yakovlevich drew a coat over his shirt, sat down at the table, shook out some salt for himself, prepared two onions, assumed a serious expression, and began to cut the bread. After he had cut the loaf in two halves, he looked, and to his great astonishment saw something whitish sticking in it. He carefully poked round it with his knife and felt it with his finger. Quite firmly fixed, he murmured into his beard. What can it be? He put in his finger and drew out a nose. Ivan Yakovlevich at first let his hands fall from sheer astonishment. Then he rubbed his eyes and began to feel it. A nose, an actual nose, and moreover it seemed to be the nose of an acquaintance. We hear then how his wife screams abuse at him. Whatever have you done, did you cut that off someone's face? And he keeps staring at it and he realises in the end that it belongs to one Kovlevov, who is a member of the municipal committee, someone who comes to be shaved twice a week. And we hear how he decides he'd better wrap it up in a piece of cloth and take it away and leave it somewhere. And then, of course, the story takes off because the nose turns into a character that takes itself around St. Petersburg and we hear about all its adventures. Here, for example, is the moment when the nose's owner, Kovlevov, sees it out and about. Quote, a carriage drew up at the entrance. The carriage door was opened, and a gentleman in uniform came out and hurried up the steps. How great was Kovlevov's terror and astonishment when he saw that it was his own nose. At this extraordinary sight, everything seemed to turn round with him. He felt as though he could hardly keep upright on his legs, but, though trembling all over as with fever, he resolved to wait till the nose should return to the carriage. After about two minutes, the nose actually came out again. It wore a gold-embroidered uniform with a stiff high collar, trousers of chamois leather and a sword hung at its side. The hat, adorned with a plume, showed that it held the rank of a state councillor. It was obvious that it was paying duty calls. It looked round on both sides, called to the coachman, drive on, got into the carriage and drove away. Kovlovov then chases after the carriage and has a surreal conversation with the nose and so the story goes on. OK then, so that's Gogol. Moving on to Tolstoy, Leo Tolstoy as he's known in English, or to give him his Russian title, Count Lev Nikolaevich Tolstoy, born in 1828, so just about 20 years later than Gogol, although he lived much longer, he lived until 1910. He really was Moscow-based, but he does set some of his work in St. Petersburg, and from that we soon realise that actually he didn't seem to be very fond of it. I think for him St. Petersburg stood for everything he didn't like about Russian life. It was full of pose, as he thought, the fashionable. It was decadent. It lacked spiritual values. And most of all, it seemed to be full of immoral temptations, which would lure particularly young men into trouble. For a very brief example, you can look to two characters in War and Peace. There's Anna Scherer, who is one of the doyen of St. Petersburg High Society. She's fashionable. She gives balls. She's a society hostess. And he describes her with two very well-chosen throwaway words to show what a hypocrite she was. He writes of her, quote, feigned enthusiasms. In the same passage, this is at one of the balls that she's given, we meet Natasha Rostov, who actually comes from Moscow, and is described very differently. She really is a proper enthusiastic person who hasn't got all these layers of fashion and artifice about her. So he describes Natasha as being, quote, an enjoyer of huge merry gatherings, spontaneous and delightful. There's something fresh, original, un-Petersburg about her. 
think we've found before that there's always been this rivalry between Moscow, the ancient capital, and St. Petersburg, the newer upstart, and many people, Tolstoy included, come down on one side of the argument or the other. For him, Moscow's the real place, St. Petersburg is frivolity and deceit. But we can still rely on him for little cameos of St. Petersburg life. Here, for example, he is describing the evening of the ball that we've just been hearing about. So he writes about the people arriving as follows. The dignitary's well-known house on the English embankment shone with countless lights. Carriages drove away and new ones drove up with red-liveried footmen and footmen with feathers in their hats. Men in uniform, stars and sashes emerged from the carriages. Ladies in satin and ermine carefully descended the noisily flipped-down footdresses and stepped hastily and soundlessly over the bays of the porch. Into all this splendour is coming Natasha. She's been driven along and being very young, she's imagining what she's going to see and she's full of excitement. And it goes like this. In the brightly lit rooms, music, flowers, dancing, the sovereign, all the brilliant youth of St. Petersburg. What awaited her was so beautiful that she did not even believe it could happen. So out of keeping it was with the impression of the cold, the crowdedness, the darkness of the carriage. And then we go on to read of her getting out of the carriage and going up the lit stairway which is festooned with flowers in her beautiful dress, all ready for an evening of partying. Here in St Petersburg, then, she'll have an evening in the finest style and meet some of the most majestic people. In his other great weighty novel, Anna Karenina, Tolstoy gives us a picture of a visiting prince who's come to St Petersburg and is being entertained by one of the main characters, Count Vronsky, and he gives us an idea of St Petersburg as being both very Russian and yet having a layer of sophistication on top of that. So he tells us, for example, that during the week of the prince's visit, the Russian amusements that he was offered included, quote, trotting races, pancakes, bear hunts, troikas, gypsies, and orgies with smashing of crockery in the Russian fashion. The prince presumably went to all of these things and learned a bit about Russian culture, but then we're told that, quote, As a matter of fact, of all the Russian amusements, the prince preferred French actresses, a ballet dance, and white seal champagne. So this idea that sophistication is layered on top of the, inverted commas, ordinary Russian pastimes. And then finally, Fyodor Dostoevsky, born in 1821. So more or less contemporary with Tolstoy, although he didn't live anywhere near as long. He died in 1881 so fully 30 years before Tolstoy died. Dostoevsky, I think, is probably the author whose books English readers most readily associate with St. Petersburg. He lived there, he wrote there, he died there, he set his books there. A Tome Like Crime and Punishment, for example, takes place entirely in the city, and it's believed, in fact, that the plot, which is of a murder, was based on an actual murder which happened in St. Petersburg. It's said that Dostoevsky used to read the papers to get his plot ideas. We know that he left school and did military service and then pretty much from then on devoted himself to writing. He had quite a dramatic incident in his early adult life. He joined something called the Petrashevsky Society, which was a group of students and writers and businessmen who met up to discuss politics and social reform, which was infiltrated by the Tsar's secret police. They got themselves into terrible trouble, got arrested, were imprisoned in the Peter and Paul Fortress I think I mentioned that in the episode when we talked about the fortress, and underwent this macabre incident where he and 15 other people 
were sentenced to death and marched out to be shot. And at the very, very last minute, after they were all lined up, the sentence was commuted and turned, in his case, to a sentence of six years hard labour in Siberia and four more years of forced military army service. The terrible story, but it's thought that those ten years really were years in which he mixed with all kinds of people, knew real hardship, and in fact also found the very deep religious faith that sustained him and influenced his novels for the rest of his life. We know that by the 1860s he was back living in St Petersburg, married. He and his wife had four children, but they lost two of them in infancy. So the two of them and their other two children lived in a succession of houses in the city where it's believed they had a really very happy family life. More about that when we get to the museum, but there are a lot of things which imply that really they were a very close-knit little unit. And it was here that he finished the novel that really was going to make his name, namely Crime and Punishment, which was thought to be the first ever attempt at a psychological portrait of a murderer, and which was also enjoyed because of its treatment of huge important themes like evil and guilt and redemption. So the novel is set in the Senea Ploschard district, a haymarket district in which the city's poorest inhabitants lived, centering round the city's cheapest, liveliest market, a real place of dirt and squalor, vice and crime. We know that not only did Dostoevsky live there, in various places, but in that district, for 28 years, but that he often studied it. He would be seen walking about, following people, taking notes on the people that he saw. And it's thought that really many of them probably turned up then later in his novels. And you get these pen portraits that seem very realistic of students and craftsmen and peddlers, clerks and shopkeepers, beggars, prostitutes, all these people are in his books, and all taken, it's thought, from real life. So the plot of the story centres around one Raskolnikov, who's a student living in a tiny, shabby rented room, who visits an elderly pawnbroker and moneylender and robs her and bungles the whole thing and ends up murdering her. That's all in the first chapter or two. And the rest of the book really charts his descent into guilt and madness. He becomes more and more suspicious to other people. So the tension of the novel is, is he going to be caught? Is he going to confess? Is he ever going to be able to come to terms with this terrible thing that he's done? Of course you read it for the plot. Of course you read it for the wonderful writing and the themes. But you can also read, bits of it at least, to get some insight into the St Petersburg of Dostoevsky's day. Occasionally you get a few lines that could almost come from a tourist brochure describing the beauty of the city. So, for example, one evening when Raskolnikov is out and about near the river, he writes this. There was not a wisp of cloud in the sky, and the water was almost blue, as happens only rarely on the Neva. The cupola of the cathedral glittered in the sunshine, and in the clean air, every ornament on it could be plainly distinguished. He then goes on to tell us how Raskolnikov himself was taken with the beauty of it. He often stopped in a particular place, quote, On this very spot, he gazed intently at this truly magnificent panorama but there are many more descriptions of the tatty parts of the city and what they were really like. So here he is, for example, on the Haymarket. Quote, it was about nine o'clock when he crossed the Haymarket. All the tradesmen, hawkers, stallholders and big and small shopkeepers were shutting up shop, taking down and clearing away their merchandise and, like their customers, going home. All sorts of tradespeople, 
the rag and bone men gathered in large crowds at the entrances of eating houses, on the lower floors and in the dirty and stinking courtyards of the houses, and most of all near the pubs. Raskolnikov was particularly fond of these places, as well as of all the alleyways in the vicinity, whenever he went out for a stroll in the streets. Here his rags attracted no one's supercilious attention, and he could go about dressed as he liked without scandalising anybody. In the description of the tatty little room that Raskolnikov rents in a boarding house, you get an idea of the tattiness and squalor not only of his life, but probably of the lives of so many of the city's 19th century inhabitants. So this is how he describes it. Quote, it was a tiny cubicle, about six feet in length, which looked most miserable, with its dusty yellowish paper peeling off the walls everywhere. It was, besides, so low that even a man only a little above average height felt ill at ease in it, fearing all the time that he might knock his head against the ceiling. The furniture was in keeping with the room. Three old chairs, none of them in good condition, a painted table in the corner with a few books and notebooks so thickly covered with dust that it was clear they had not been touched for a long time, and lastly, a huge clumsy sofa, occupying almost the entire length of the wall and stretching half across the room. The sofa, which had once been covered with chintz, was now all tattered, and was Raskolnikov's bed. He often went to sleep on it, just as he was, without undressing and without a sheet, covered by his old threadbare student's overcoat, with his head resting on a small pillow, under which he shoved whatever linen he possessed, clean and dirty, so as to raise it as high as possible. We meet too the Marmeladov family, who are acquaintances of Raskolnikov, and who show the difficulty of life for the poorest people, cut down by a mix of poverty and drunkenness and crime. We learn, for example, that the father had been killed in an accident. He'd been staggering about the city drunk, so the mother was left with the children, who are dressed in rags, who have very little food to eat, and of whom the oldest daughter is forced to go out and earn what she can by working as a prostitute. There's a terrible moment just after the father's been killed, when Raskolnikov gives the woman a coin, he wants to help in any way he can, and poor as she is and knowing that she's got nothing for her children in the future, she insists on putting the money towards a funeral spread. She wants to, people to come to the funeral and she wants to give them food to eat so that she can send her husband off in a dignified way. In fact, towards the end of the story, the same daughter, Sonia, who's been forced to work as a prostitute, turns out to be the person who offers Raskolnikov some redemption. So it's not a situation devoid of all hope, but it certainly makes for a pretty bleak reading. If you're out and about in St. Petersburg today, there are a number of ways that you can find, in inverted commas, Dostoevsky. Just, for example, by wandering about the Senea Ploschad district, if you go into the Dostoevsky Museum, which is in, in that district, you can get a leaflet which will take you on a walk round the area and show you some of the houses, point out some of the buildings that he lived in, point out the debtor's prison that we know he once spent a few nights in, and show also some houses which it's believed were the buildings he had in mind as the homes of some of his characters. There's also in that same district a place called Raskolnikov House, which isn't open to the public, but which has outside it a sculpture of Dostoevsky with an inscription on it which reads, in Russian of course, as follows. The tragic fate of the people of this area of St. Petersburg formed the foundation of Dostoevsky's passionate sermon of goodness for all mankind. 
And most interestingly, there's the Dostoevsky Museum in Kuznetsny Lane in this same district. A museum made in a house, or the house in fact, which was the last one that he lived in, in the city, and in which you can see the rooms on the, I think it's first or second floor, that formed the family's apartment, restored to be as much as possible as they had been when he was there. Some archive photographs were used to model exactly what the place had been like, and there are quite a lot of photographs and items of furniture and various things which did actually belong to Dostoevsky himself. So you can go on a tour of the flat, see his study and his writing desk, for example, see the children's nursery, which has still got a rocking horse in it, and silhouettes that they had done of their son and daughter. You can learn a lot about family life. There are diary extracts by him and by his daughter, recalling evenings of dancing about in the sitting room or visitors who came to call. You can learn about his charity work, some of the readings that he gave for things like the Slavonic Charitable Society and to fund women's medical courses. You can read about the literary fund that he was a part of. Again, more readings and meetings, very much a part of his life. And there's also information about the days that he died and his funeral. He died at home. His body lay in the study for two days. Friends came to visit and to pray and hold services. In the guidebook, for example, it tells us that at times there were so many people at the services that not only was it impossible to move, but it was difficult to breathe. That was written by someone described as a memoirist, as somebody who was actually there at the time. There's a description and photographs of the transfer of his coffin to the Alexander Nevsky Monastery for burial. And you realise that, again, this was one of these long funeral processions for one of the sons of the city that everybody was so proud of. The whole thing took three hours. And there's information about how, in the 1970s, it was decided to create the museum here in the last house in which he lived. Descendants, academics, lots of people began sending things to use in the displays, and they set about restoring the apartment to be as faithful a copy as possible of how it was when Dostoevsky and his wife and children lived there. In another part of the building, aside from where they actually lived, is a long museum room called the Hall of Literary Exhibits. It's got a rather bizarre epigraph taken from the Bible, but applied to Dostoevsky, which I suppose shows the reverence in which he's held as one of Russia's really truly greatest writers. So it reads, He was the burning and shining lamp, and you were willing for a time to rejoice in his light. If you have any Russian, you might like to know that in this same museum, there's a room that's been adapted for theatre performances, and they sometimes do adaptations of his work, and also other works by writers such as Ibsen and other contemporaries. Not quite sure what you'd make of that if you didn't speak any Russian, but for anyone who does, there's a thought. OK, so that is my treatment of those three 19th century authors who all have something to tell us about the St. Petersburg of their day. And it's also, in fact, the last but one episode in the St. Petersburg series. I've got one more planned for next week. I'm going to stay with literature because I'd like to talk a little bit about the literature, some of it written in the Soviet period. I want to go back to Anna Akhmatova. We talked about her life in the actual episode on the Soviet period in the city, but we didn't really look much at what she wrote, so I want to put that right and also look at one or two other books written during that time. And focus then secondly on a pair of novels by Helen Dunmore which are set in St. Petersburg in the Soviet period and from which you can learn from a different viewpoint again quite a lot about just what life was actually like for ordinary people 
in those days. So that's all for next week. For this week then, I'd like to sign off with a lovely big thank you for your attention today. Spasibo. And by wishing you goodbye in Russian, which I fancy I'm getting a bit better at now that we're on episode 16. Dos vidanya. <laughs>